the sort of irony at the heart of the scientific revolution, right, is that the project to isolate variables, narrowly define factors, instead sort of dropped us at this precipice over which we kind of see the swirling chaos, like the fundamental unknowability and the fundamental unhavability of everything. And I have the sense that the agents of deception are in a way our greatest allies in that they're, uh, they're fine-tuning our instruments for sensing maybe not truth, but meaning, mm-hmm. you know, or what, what resonates with us. So I try to look for the deception closest to the truth <laughs> that in the midst of that ocean of misinformation to find that which, yeah, which closest resembles what feels true. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 101 of the podcast that explores now in light of then. That's right. This show is growing up and I feel like it was a good time to compress some of the lessons from the first hundred episodes into a kind of overview or summation before we move boldly forward into new terrain with the next hundred episodes. And who better to do that with than Michelangelo, my friend, a torch-carrying psychedelic bard if I ever knew one, and Michelle Shevin, professional futurist, star player in the Future Fossils Facebook group. I feel so lucky to be associated with someone as insightful as Michelle And she's really helped me understand, as has Michael, the theme, future fossils, and and what it means even more than what I had intended when Evan Snyder and I first came up with this show. So having them on to help me define a future fossils 101 bouquet of ideas is part of this general step towards making this a more communal project. There are 1,300 people in that Facebook group now, just slaying it every day with amazing news and interesting art and creative shares and thoughtful commentary. I mean, this, as far as it is facilitating the kind of important conversations I hoped it would, has succeeded admirably. But as far as it uh, really like taking care of me and compensating me fairly for the amount of time I put into it, not so much. So as we round the end of the year, I might as well jump in like everyone and ask you to consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. There's been a lot of big change in my life lately, a new job, a cross-country move. I'm about to have a child and all of these things have made it so that In certain ways, this show is more important than ever to me, uh, and in other ways, more difficult than it has ever been to find the time to do it. So the pressure to make this podcast a viable business is greater than ever. But the silver lining there is that the best way for me to do that is to serve you better in your connections with one another, in the emergent wonder that occurs therein. The community and the conversation have grown a lot this last year, but the number of Patreon supporters I've had has actually remained pretty much stagnant. So I'm really trying to shoot for a goal here. Uh, 200 people at any level. We're at 128 right now. 
and I don't expect to hit that by the end of the year, but 200 people means a really healthy flow of folks through the new monthly book club that we're starting. We're going to have our first video call for Peter Watts's Blind Sight in January, so if you're interested, any level of donations at Patreon gets you in on that and on secret episodes and on the natural history field guide coloring book I'm making to the creatures and jewelry of our psychedelic imagination. All of these things, music, I I put everything, I just pour my heart through all media (laughs) into Patreon. And yeah, um, with 200 patrons, I will be able to launch some very intensive new projects into motion and i would love to do that for you anyway thanks for hearing me out and uh, thanks everyone who has been supporting the show and in other ways also in, in sharing it with your friends and in rating it on the podcast platforms where you listen that's hugely helpful i just really want to see these things discussed these issues matter and It gives me a lot of hope in trying times to know that there are so many smart, soulful, thoughtful people out there, and just among the ones I know. And surely that means that there are enough of us to affect a real change in this generation. So, thanks. And here you go. So it begins again. Ah, yes, indeed, it does. Actually, I want to give you the first volley, Michelangelo, because you were the one who suggested <laughs> that this be that because this is Future Fossils episode one hundred and one that we do a Future Fossils one hundred and one, uh, and <laughs> so yeah. What have I gotten myself into, man? Exactly. I was just, I was just making a suggestion. I didn't mean to rope myself into it. <laughs> well, I've been looking well, to have... Welcome to Future Fossils 101 with Michael Garfield and Michelle Shevin. Yeah, that's right. Shevin. I'll be your co-host, the ungoogleable Michelangelo, as we embark on a journey through time, 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 time. A journey through time, 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 past present and future and the fourth category there's eternity there's the vertical axis Mm. you know which is different from duration so okay so the first two episodes of this show that ever happened were me and evan snyder riffing on chronos and kairos because i wanted to set the you know where do we orient ourselves but that was three years ago (laughs) so we might be fresher on those terms yeah, so uh, we're t- you know that was you know the Greek terms for time as a quantity, time as as something that we measure, and then Kairos uh, is time in the sense of it being like it is timing, like now is the time, you know it's time to plant. When is it time to plant? Well, it's a little different every year, you know. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I regard these two to, to loop in. This will be my callbacks 
episode where I'm like Bumblebee from Transformers and I just <laughs> speak in citations of earlier Future Fossils episodes. But This is the condensation of all time that preceded us. Yeah. Right. Well, this is the whole thing is that I've been thinking a lot about time lately and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but that's kind of part of the performance of the show. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking about time a lot lately in terms of uh, algorithmic information theory, because I've been learning a lot about that at the Santa Fe Institute and about, you know, time as something that we we measure through a kind of like information processing deal. And so, like, there's there's a sense in which J.F. Martell, who was guest on episode 18 and 71, his thoughts on the difference between the digital and the analog as being sort of contained within each other. And that there isn't really, you know, if you look at Kairos closely enough, you could argue that you can measure timing. In some sense, that's a big part of what's going on at the Santa Fe Institute is they're trying to find ways to quantify all of these like slippery, complex, you know, things that are kind of hard to put your finger on. You know, when we talk about like evolutionary is, emergence. Is that anything akin to the the time wave zero theory where you kind of like map a timeline onto historical events? Well, actually, you know, there is, um, they had a symposium this year where they did uh, the science of innovation and invention. And this question, you know, they had a, a couple of really good panel discussions about, uh, is there a way that we can quantify the various factors that contribute to an innovative community? Like, you know, like an innovative organization or... Uh, you know, Jeffrey West, who's the former president of SFI, did this whole book on scaling laws in cities and argues that, you know, per capita, a city twice the size of another city has, requires 15% less infrastructure and generates 15% more patents. So there's like, there's something about the, the properties of the network of a city itself or of an organism, like a, any kind of living system that the bigger it gets, the innovation it's capable of scales super linearly, like more than one-to-one, -one, but it also generates super linear scaling for like crime and disease and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think there's, there is something in Terrence McKenna's time wave about there being a, uh, you know, a collapse and that that's actually, maybe that's like sort of the information theory argument for why a time wave zero kind of moment couldn't happen is that it's like you get to that point and then the whole system would just fall apart. You know, that that's like the end of the game. Or maybe it's, you know, the the, the tightening of the spiral, as he says. You know, if you have like a... If you think of it like a rubber band and you like keep tightening the spiral in the end, it's just going to snap back, right? And then it's form a lot of other little spirals when it does. But it's going to, uh, it's going to kind of sprinkle off, uh, yeah. send out waves yeah. across time. So there's, there's Kronos and Kairos and... Those two things seem to contain each other. And I think that that's sort of like where we can leave it. We can just sort of like squish that there and say that there's there's something about measurement and and experience and that those two things are like a yin-yang. And so in a way that's sort of, I feel like that's sort of set. Like we've locked that in and then this conversation is all about, okay, so, you know, what is it about this time in particular that seems worth noting and i know that both of you have written really excellent stuff about the retrieval of earlier modes of consciousness and earlier uh cultural and even non-human intelligence forms in this age we seem to have reached a point 
where we need to reach beyond what we thought of as like human or civilized or whatever. And also, you know, Michelle in particular, you've, you've got a really great essay that I think you read before the call, Michael, right? About fake news mm-hmm. and about this notion, you know, episode 91, an oral history of the end of reality is this question of the density of information that we're dealing with now and how it's getting really hard. I mean, this is keeping me awake at night now that I'm actually like in a building with scientists and I'm seeing how this works institutionally and how it really is very insanely difficult for people whose full-time job it is to stay on top of the leading wave of their own field of expertise to actually do so. You know, that there's just so much happening. It's getting hard to tell whether we're coming or going in a sense. So Mm -hmm. that's my like, you've already talked too much at the beginning of the episode thing. And I'm just curious, like, how do you feel that we can orient ourselves in time? And what are your thoughts on all this stuff? Y'all? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a crazy time to be living in, which is like one of those things you say as like a 30 year old and be like, well, probably every 30 year old ever alive has said the same thing. So it's one of those funny like, I don't know if this is a virtue of me being here and alive in this moment that it seems notable or because it really is compared to all other points in time. And does that distinction even matter? Right. So it's kind of that funny experience of um, that. I think we're all sharing in some way. That's the amazing part about it is, you know, every new moment in time feels like the most important moment and by virtue of all being here together we have that as a shared experience and kind of can draw on you know the ways in which that might be real and lead to new insights and the ways in which that's just like a shared masturbatory fantasy that carries us through the experience of life right so it almost doesn't matter but yeah the idea i mean the the fake news piece you mentioned like the idea that the default state of humanity is to swim in the sea of fake news, to exist in a state of constant misinformation, that the project of the media has never been to produce truth, but rather to produce meaning. And so we're all kind of just grappling through this, what appears to be increasingly chaotic stew of, as you said, information, right, the information age, and trying to make meaning out of that and the extent to which it's increasingly difficult to create shared meaning. And yet, because we're all having the experience of information overload and being overwhelmed and being kept up at night, we're also having conversations like this about how do we create that shared meaning. And so that's maybe unique as well. And so, you know, we're all just kind of on the precipice, it feels like, right? I mean, WJT Mitchell says something like, um, we're all constantly feeling like, everything's about to happen or perhaps it already has without our noticing it. And so that kind of FOMO of that fear of missing out on information and yet there's more information at our fingertips than there ever has before. So it does feel like there's something unique about the moment and yet like we're never quite able to have it or grasp it. We're only ever in the now. Uh, We can never have the future. We can never have the past. They're not real. They don't exist. So yeah, it's uh it's crazy. It's chaos. It's it's an adventure. And yeah, thanks for having me on to kind of grapple our way through it together. <laughs> I feel in that overwhelming um, ocean of information, I oftentimes, you know, there's all these books about like trying to find your way into the present or trying to be present. I often feel trapped in the present because of that information. You know what I mean? Like, it's like I'm like a mime in a box of my own self-imposed limitations and I'm trying to find my way out into 
access to the past or access to some some wave into the future, you know? So when we're in this ocean of chaos, we're going to project or divine some kind of order from it, some kind of pattern amidst the madness. I was recently in a uh, like three or four month uh, flow state, uh, hyper manic productive space in which it really felt like the the walls of time had been mowed down and I had access to earlier experiences, uh, like experiences from like a decade, decade and a half ago that I was able to mine for um, creative output. And uh, and for me, I feel like those are like chronopractic adjustments, you know, the ability to go back into your timeline and re-envision the past and like pull it all back into alignment so that when you see where you've been, you can see where you're going. So like both sides of those walls are mowed down. But And I felt like the energy that was coming, that was fueling me, was actually coming from the future, from like mirages up ahead of goals that I had set for myself or or things I was working towards that were feeding back to me in time. Because as humans, we feed on illusions, I think. Mm. And after a while, um, you know, three months or so, four months, the illusions, the mirages ahead of time started fizzling out. And all of a sudden, I found myself again. I found the well of the past at the same time also drying up. And I found myself again confined in that box in the present and uh, trying to find my way out, mm-hmm. trying to find that, that way back into uh, divining a way into uh, the timeless space. You know, And the idea of fake news, what I really enjoyed from reading your article, Michelle, and what came up for me is that you were saying it's always been this way. You know, there's always been fake news. There's always been misinformation and this sort of thing. Um, I feel that all expression is a form of deception. Mm. Because as soon as we articulate something, we're changing the quality of it. or We're changing, we're, um, we're enforcing the reality, mm-hmm. enforcing the perception. And I have this sense that the agents of deception are in a way our greatest allies in that they're, uh, they're fine-tuning our instruments for sensing maybe not truth, but meaning, mm-hmm. you know, or what, what resonates with us. So I try to look for the deception closest to the truth <laughs> that in the midst of that ocean of misinformation to find that which, yeah, which closest resembles what feels true, which I guess would be meaning. In in that piece, I, I you know, I mentioned that the, the Plato quote that, um, you know, Plato said that writing is a step backward for truth. And it makes me wonder, you know, as you're you know, saying that, that every new form of ex, uh, expression is instantly sort of viewed with suspicion or vilified as, you know, another path away from objective reality or away from truth. Like, makes me wonder if the earliest language users and, of course, I mean, you think they probably didn't, but was there the feeling of what are we losing by evolving this mm. capability? And with every capability that we evolve, is are we destined to sort of feel that we're moving away from some noble savagery or some unattainable sort of ineffable realness that technology or progress just inevitably delivers us away from and towards something else? <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, there's, there, I've been putting these pieces together from at a scientific institution where there's just this constant flow of visiting researchers presenting on stuff. And I have a rare opportunity there to sit in on all these presentations that are, I, I have a kind of a cross-sectional view, these like slices through a global research community talking about evolution and like evolutionary novelty. 
you know, there's been a couple people I've I've heard from that are a little older, got a little bit more experience in complex system science. They're listening to talks that seem really fresh and innovative, and they're like, "This is something that this person was talking about 20 years ago, or like in the 1980s." And as the field progresses, as the the scientific body of knowledge grows. Every individual human being is still coming up into that from scratch and discovering yep. it anew. And it really makes it, I think, like impossible for us to figure out what new really is because there is this the offloading of our own memory into those recorded media. And so from the POV of the Internet, yes, today is different than yesterday. But for all of us living inside it, it's getting harder and harder to tell because more and more of our episodic autobiographical memory storage is now somewhere else. And like, mm -hmm. there's so much, you know, to your point, Michael, about feeling trapped in the present by the flow of information. You know, you think about like somebody taking a, you know, a powerful psychedelic and their attention is completely captured by the, the flow of all of this visual imagery and, and revelatory insight. And then when they come out of it, they don't remember shit, you know? And it's like you dilate to a point where you can't actually like write any of it into the scratch memory so that it can be pressed down into the long-term memory. And I think that's a, you know, that's sort of what's going on now on the, the secret episode I did with the tea fairy that she wouldn't let me release. That's up on Patreon. She, and I talked about this, like the internet as a psychedelic substance and how it seems like there's a trend in evolution, another one of these sort of big general things about functional coupling, like the neurons that fire together, wire together. They're finding evidence for this at the gene regulatory level so that you're seeing that complex animal behaviors emerge like machine learning out of like the chicken leans over and opens its beak and closes its beak in one continuous motion because all of those different activities and the expression of the genes responsible for that have been fused into a single regulatory complex. And so each of them becomes sort of more and more vestigial and partial and specialized and in a sense like domesticated. Like this is what's happened to us with our relationship to dogs and other domestic animals like Everybody involved, their brains and their jaws have gotten smaller. They've gotten more and more dependent on one another. And as we become, as a species, like totally superpowered, as individuals, we become like idiots. It, mm -hmm. it seems, and it, I don't know that there's a way out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I see that in the, it's kind of like a, uh, a technological uh, phantom limb or crutch, really, that's kind of transplants our, our own agency into the machine. Uh, I, I have this poem. It's like a series of short poems called Greatest Hits, and each one of them is like, I took a hit of this, I took a hit of that. <laughs> and one of them is, um, I took a hit of GPS, got lost within the endlessness, gave up the compass in my chest, and oriented to the West, <laughs> which speaks to that idea, you know, like as soon as we have this little technological voice dictating the way, we stop being able to navigate ourselves through that world. You know? mm -hmm. And similarly, what you were saying, Michelle, about the introduction of print or printed language, written language, writing, uh, and how that must have changed things. There's even a hit of that in there. I've got, um, I took a hit of ABC, forever changed reality, 
alpha diabetically, I miss the void abysmally. <laughs> I love that. I love that. No, I mean, sorry, go ahead. We're recording from within the tesseract, right? It's like the 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 now that can't be escaped looks different than we ever thought it did. And like something like a psychedelic can reveal that to you. But I loved, Michael, what you were saying about kind of the, the neoteny that's a byproduct of domestication, right? The like the the returning back to sort of babyhood in some sense. And I, I even heard, I mean, it reminds me of, I was listening to um, one of the previous episodes you did together and sort of this talk about like, you know, are we, are we on a path to where like all of humanity is pedophilic because we're obsessed with youth and the natural kind of, and, you know, and, and end place of that is to like all be Benjamin Button or babies. Um, And then, and then like, just to layer on another piece onto that, you know, the, the, if, if the kind of coupling happens even at the genetic encoding level or the genetic regulatory level, like what happens to all of this when DNA actually becomes the substrate for recording information? Um, and, and we're like, you know, we'll, we're, you'll have to like be remastering these episodes in like actual DNA. Yes. <laughs> yes. Have you seen Uploading. my pinned tweet, by the way? I don't know. What it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the like one of the earliest films was that zoetrope type deal of the running horse. Yeah. And some researchers a year or two ago, I can't tell anymore. Um, I don't bother <laughs> to remember the dates. They're just there. Uh, no, I- so a couple researchers recently found a way to inscribe that movie bit by bit into bacterial DNA. Right. And so they were able to retrieve it. And there's a GIF on my Twitter I think it's still the pin post on Twitter of this image of the original movie and then what they were able to reproduce from the bacterial DNA of a, like this movie of a running horse. And I was like, yes, how long until we can get every episode of Future Fossils like stamped into my DNA? Because um, that's a lot easier than carrying around like a, a, a medical warning bracelet or whatever. Right. They're like, oh, this guy's weird. You know, give him. Give them a needle to this. The, Viruses don't run in my in my DNA; they gallop. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, Echopraxia by Peter Watts takes place about a hundred years from now, and in it, the I, I love this book and the predecessor, uh, the first book, uh, Blind Sight, which we're going to read in the Future Fossils uh, reading group uh, in January. Um, the protagonist of Echo, Echopraxia, which is like not exactly a sequel. Uh, is a biologist a hundred years from now and biology is totally computational and CRISPR has like backwashed into all of our ecosystems. And, uh, I'm sort of like extending an, an inviting bridge to you, Michelle, with this one, cause you've written about this also that he, like the biologist gets to this point where he's like, Oh, it's still worth studying wild organisms now instead of just simulating entire ecosystems in a computer. But it's extremely hard to find an animal that basically isn't just like a USB stick for some bullshit, you know, that isn't in some way that that's like actually an animal and not an arc for like the library of Congress or some nonsense, you know? Mm. And so that's the collapse. I think, I mean, if, if anything, this is like, this is my identifying marker. Like, oh, where are we? What is new? How do we tell what new is? We're at a point now where maybe 
we're just more aware of the fact that simultaneous invention and discovery occurs and mm-hmm. that these things are themselves sort of like adaptive responses to a particular informational environment like you have you know necessity is the mother of invention but then there's what they call the zone of proximal evolution which is like a giant squid can only evolve a larger eye it's not going to spontaneously like quantum leap over to having sonar like a sperm whale and so it it's doomed right like the squid is never going to be as well adapted to the deep sea as the sperm whale it won't be able to like sense as far the sperm whale has always got to jump on the squid mm-hmm. and so you know, there's like something about that with inventions. Like we we can't invent what we don't have the parts lying around for, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, in the sense that like every new trait is just a co-opted set of previous traits. Like every new technology is just like an assemblage or a remix of previous technologies. And so there is the sense now that we're aware of this and that we're we're becoming aware of this and that's what distinguishes this age is that we're we're still like amazed by the idea of writing songs and stuff into dna but on another level it's it's already prosaic like it's already kind of like well duh because we already think of dna even if we're not using it as a technology we're already thinking of it as a technology and we're already thinking of technology as you know innovations like david krakauer uh, of sfi who before I was working there, I interviewed for episode 75. David has just a totally rebellious, but I think accurate view of invention that, that basically the inventor is not responsible, you know, that, that it's like the, the inventor is like a lightning rod, you know, mm-hmm. like right place, right time, mm-hmm. right set of circumstances. And then you get 23 people who invented the light bulb. And you get like Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin come up with natural selection at the same time on opposite sides of the planet. And so this is a total tangent, but like personal culpability can't exist in that paradigm. Like right. the legal system fails when you, yeah. what is it that, that show my brain made me do it? Yeah. You know? It's like, you're not like, it's the toxoplasmosis it's, from my cat's shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dennis McKenna uh, and I talked about that a little bit and it, it was funny to see what the, uh, a psychonaut such as he found like unwilling or uncomfortable with like what disturbed him to the point where he didn't want to talk about it. And it was that it was toxoplasmosis <laughs> mind control. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny because if, if that's the environment that we're living in where, you know, you have within a room of complexity scientists, the kind of old guard saying, wait a second, we were talking about this 20 years ago and we're just starting to kind of integrate insights between disciplines, let alone catalog what's kind of now canon within disciplines. Then I think part of our project, if we're all on the shared project as, as you've put it, that I love Michael, like midwives to new myths, if that's kind of the project and like part of it is to kind of litter the landscape with like the right raw material so that in the future the right raw material is just lying around for people to pick up and build the tools with because we could I mean it's easy to see how we could get stuck in this chaos of too much information at our fingertips nothing is cataloged nothing is around existing as raw material to be remixed into new information new ideas new myths it's it's that feels very much like now is this crisis of too much and yet not enough that's integrated um 
And so we have to, we're all kind of like barreling through this madness, trying to create communities to catalog the information and to, to kind of litter the landscape with it. I think that the idea of the future fossils podcast as a, as a concept has to do a lot with, um, kind of preservation, right, of, of stories, of ideas in the midst of this overwhelming sea of chaos. But what I think happens when we get overwhelmed by the information that we, we can't properly catalog is, is that we, we cartoonize it. It becomes almost like a caricature of itself. And uh, instead of preserving uh, or, uh, or mummifying it, uh, it becomes memified. You know, it's like, and, and a meme is very much like a, a meme is like a mummy, you know, it's like, it's, it's like raisins. It's been, been drained. It's like reason that's been raisined and drained of all its vital substance. And all that's left is just this like impression of the thing. And what, what you were saying, Michael, it, um, yeah, I've, I've always thought of my DNA as like a one liner, but you make it seem almost like a hand cranked calliope in the future where you crank it and the monkey dances to the music of its own soul or something. Um, and another thing you, you just mentioned that, uh, brought something to mind was uh have you read free will by sam harris no because he gets into a lot of this uh my brain made me do it kind of examination which uh, i'd never really thought of how philosophy enters legislature which i thought was very interesting because he basically puts down a few different scenarios like a 25 year old man brutally rapes and murders this woman and you know we have a certain view of that but then if you look at his um neurological makeup and it turns out there's a tumor that's working in on his aggression centers that's actually like influenced these behaviors that otherwise would not have happened it's like is it this guy or is it you know is it this guy's free will his choices that made this happen or is it this other component that's playing in on it and how our legislature is set up with this notion of free will without looking at these other uh, forces that are playing into that which I'd never really thought about how that bridges into legislature, but it's just fascinating to me. And it also makes me think of this movie Upstream Color. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It, the, the film itself is very flawed, but I love thinking about it, and I love reading about it and the ideas behind it. It's basically, it, to put it abstractly, it's, uh, it's a story of some humans going through some things, but it's really the story of the life cycle of this particular parasite, and this parasite is harvested from these blue flowers, turned into a drug that gives people mind control uh, over other people. Um, it leaves them dissociated. You follow them around as they're dissociated. Um, the parasite then gets harvested from them by this other person who lures them in with sound samples. This is why you'll really enjoy it. Transposes this, this thing into uh, the bodies of, of piglets through which he's able to like telepathically, telemantically keep view of these humans that he's indoctrinated. When the piglets die, they get dumped in the river. Uh, the parasite wanders through the water, fuels the blue flowers that get plucked, turned into a drug, and the cycle continues. So really, what this filmmaker tried to show was this, this these non-human forces that play in on the human story and leaves these characters basically in these sort of fugue states of not knowing what happened or not knowing uh, what it is that is moving them through life or what is influencing their choices. And like I said, it's a flawed film, but it's a fascinating concept. Dude, yeah. 
It's the same guy that did Primer. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, I did, uh, and I love it. You know, it was filmed here in Austin. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's an extraordinary. And actually, that's there's something about Primer specifically uh, that, again, you know, I, just a warning to everyone who had to suffer through five consecutive episodes about Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Uh, on this show that you might you might find me talking about uh peter watts and and blindsight uh quite a bit because there is this thing about um and again to you know to to call back to eric davis in 99 who i think has done more than anyone i've ever read or listened to to you know like hone my thinking about paranoia or like what doug rushkoff I don't remember the number of his episode, but we talked about fractal noia, which is his facet of what he calls present shock, which is this condition of not being able to orient ourselves in time. And that the paranoia of knowing for a fact, I mean, y'all are both just old enough to remember when everyone was like, Hey, is it's like Facebook knows what I'm looking at and then sells me ads. And then people are like, you're crazy. That's nonsense. Or like, uh, you know, weird studies. Shout out to those those wonderful folks. Um, they're going to be on the show soon. Uh, Phil Ford and, and J.F. Martell. Uh, we're talking about this with respect to Eyes Wide Shut, which was 1999. And at the time, nobody but the most like bonkers, ridiculous conspiracy theorists were talking about the this elite cabal of ultra-rich people that were, you know, just like flying above the rest of the plebes. And were you to talk about it, people would have looked at you like you were nuts. And now everyone still thinks it's nuts, but nobody thinks the premise is nuts. Everyone is, there's no Illuminati. But, you know, JF's point to Phil was, we all now accept that there are these mysterious shadow forces that at the dusk of civilization our eyes are adjusting to the darkness and we're seeing at the cusp of this like this coming forget who was it i know kevin kelly and a couple other folks have talked about the digital dark age mm -hmm. i know Stuart yeah. Rand talked about it in the clock of the long now that we're coming up on a point where for you know for a v number of reasons some of which we've already discussed it gets harder and harder to like index and access and make sense of what we have gathered. And so we go through this period where it's like, we're dying of thirst, like next to the sink, mm. you know, like we don't know how to operate the tap. Um, Is that sink S Y N C or? The <laughs> <laughs> yes. My Neuralink Bluetooth won't sync to my phone. So I'm, <laughs> <laughs> screwed but uh you know richard doyle who amazingly i still have not roped into having on this show but that'll happen he talked about this with respect to the paranoia of philip k dick's work and how the sort of runaway attempt to navigate this information flood leads to every security camera creates a blind spot so you put another camera there which creates a new blind spot and you get this like fractal argus that's just like coated in eyes you know and that that's like really what we're attempting as a species and it's run away and it's directional and there's probably no way to stop it because if you try to unplug then the opponent is studying while you sleep 
You know, mm. when it comes to these sort of like entropy driven metabolic arms races, like what we're stuck in with the evolution of technology and, and, and uh, culture, then it, de- it, it inevitably carries us to a point where we go back to being in a dark age where we see everything and then we realize that we are actually blind. Like we accept mm. that we're not getting any closer to having no blind spots. I think it's, it comes down to learning how to glow in the dark, you know, which is uh, <laughs> it's similar to, to what I was just saying about um, the agents of deception are our greatest teachers in that sense. Because if there is indeed, you know, we're creating this sort of um, this 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 god of surveillance, you know, this 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 god for mind government um, overlooker, this panopticon, then you know, if privacy is compromised it makes us more aware of what we're thinking or mostly what we're thinking out loud or what we're typing into our apps or into our uh, communicative technologies. And I think that that, you know, that'll probably sharpen our thinking in some way. My cat is sharpening her teeth on my desk. Hey, stop that. It sharpens our thinking. And, um, it, it, you know, I think increased surveillance creates more performative personalities so again, like a sort of a caricaturization of ourselves through that lens, which, you know, like through social media, our personas, our avatars are amplified. And so also um, the closer we start surveilling our own thoughts in our output, like the more we become what uh, Aldous Huxley described as the card in person, you know, we're all overacting our favorite character in fiction. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, reality becomes more fictionalized, becomes closer to fiction, closer to art, closer to not performance, but performancy. It's a it's a fancy mancy, you know, like necromancy or hydromancy or any kind of divinatory tactic. But I mean, that's just that's just me trying to make a positive out of a negative and trying to glow in the dark age. I'm I'm being super uh, out of place here, but I do want to just point out for listeners that what we have here this trialogue is a new york los angeles austin triad here and i think in some way that would go a long way towards understanding our various perspectives that there's well this this one comes from the netherlands too so we'll throw another mm, like yeah far flung angle into it yeah no it's, i i mean it's funny that i was reminded you know the sort of irony at the heart of the scientific revolution, right, is that the project to isolate variables, narrowly define factors, um, instead sort of dropped us at this precipice over which we kind of see the swirling chaos, you know, the quantum nature of reality, and suddenly start to understand that the reality is just a soup out of which we're constructing meaning, that there might not be a truth at all that we can glimpse or get our arms around and, and sort of in parallel, the kind of irony at the heart of artificial intelligence or automation is that the, the sort of promise of, Oh, all of this information is not only at your fingertips, but like, you know, this machine can make a first pass of deciding what's relevant and what's important. Um, and this machine will catalog it and this machine will remove all of the friction. And then the irony is it turns out that the friction was the only thing that mattered and that the friction was kind of the engine of progress. 
And so we're, we're sort of like in this moment of just these juxtapositions of these massive civilizational projects that we've taken on, just dropping us off at sort of the edge of this chasm over which we glimpse like the fundamental unknowability and the fundamental unhavability and unisability of everything, right? So it's it's almost like everything is, I mean, I, I share your kind of optimistic perspective, which is that like this, you know, what in the short term feels like fragmentation and chaos and disappointment and apocalyptic sort of imagining and fetishization is actually like the blinds being pulled off, right? Or or the glow in the dark that begins to shine as we just realize that everything we knew was wrong and yet it's beautiful. Mm. Well, to that, to that point, the unfinished thought about Richard Doyle was that he says that the paranoia, you know, that's characteristic of this transitional phase resolves in metanoia. The paranoia is... You know, my brain made me do it. Uh, Facebook made me do it. But you're not taking responsibility for your part in the Thomas Pynchon onion conspiracy of that whole situation. For whatever reason, there's still enough of your default mode network lighting up in your brain. In the info flood, your eyes are not totally dilated, right? Mm -hmm. You're keeping yourself separate just enough to feel like the whole world is out to get you because you can see the orchestration of everything. You identify the pattern, but you don't identify yourself in the pattern. You know? I'm just one man. <laughs> yes. Why are you all out to get me? It was like, who was it that was talking about? Oh, it was my buddy Mitch Mignano, who was on uh, episode uh, 57, I think. And then also recently on the decentralization panel, 98. Um, he was talking about the Joe, uh, Joe Rogan's Elon Musk episode. Mm-hmm. And he's like, of course that guy believes in simulation theory because like if anyone is going to believe it, that they're the Truman in this Truman show, it would be Elon Musk, right? Like, you know, you can, Oh, you want to dig a tunnel under LA? We just did it. You know, we just, whatever, you know, it's like he's having a lucid dream or something. Right. And yeah. so, so of course, like, you know, Elon Musk is the, the perfect candidate for an adjustment, right? Because in a way, that much personal empowerment sort of, I would, I would suggest possibly it includes the fact that, you know, that he's not actually the agent at the apex of a thing. It's, it's a misunderstanding of ecology. Like the Keystone Predator is not, they may be holding the whole thing together, but they, again, they're like, they're just a piece of it interacting with all of these other pieces. They're an overseer in the process. I mean, or, you know, I mean, literally, like if you're a, like a jaguar in a tree looking down, like, you know, my cat likes looking down into the turtle aquarium. <laughs> and that's not us anymore, right? Like that's, that's the whole thing about the panopticon, not to like dwell on this, but it does seem like it is because we know we are being watched it's concomitant with all of these other ways that we have decentered the human priority, you know, that we're no longer the center of the story. You know, we're back to like looking over our shoulder. Literally we're back to looking in our peripheral vision, you know, thinking like a prey animal, wondering Mm -hmm. what's around the corner. It's just a different level of uh, predation at this point. But again, I like, I, I try to look at all these 
technological inventions and innovations as uh, as kind of reflections of our own inner nature. You know, so the, if there's going to be more surveillance, it's you know, it's a metaphor for being under surveillance or under quotation by consciousness. So, like the more it seems like we're getting decentralized, the more it also focuses us in ourselves. All the cameras are pointed at us. Like, I'm not worried about the cameras pointing at you. I'm worried about the cameras pointing at me, you know. I'm going to play into those. Camera one, camera two. Maybe, but, okay, so maybe, uh, you know, just to be contrary, maybe you should be worried about the cameras pointing at me. <laughs> <laughs> Because well, I'm just. I'm, that's I'm the just, uh, revelation. The in that case, right? <laughs> you know, because like I mean, I you know, like I am worried about all of the cameras pointing at Elon Musk in a, in a way. You mm-hmm. know, like I am worried that he's like under the the glass of the microscope to to reference an excellent Yeasayer song about this exact situation. You know, mm-hmm. in a very a very dark but very groovy one. Anyway, so what which Yesayer, hold on, which Yesayer song? Under the glass of the microscope. It's the last oh, the last track on Fragrant World. Shame which is an me. absolutely excellent album. 2012, my favorite album of of 2012. I'm now. Yeah, and it's it's definitely like a dark look at the anthropocene, you know, mm-hmm. like a look at the black mirror and like we're you know, here we are. I almost feel like Yesayer represents the same sort of desperate revelry that early jazz did for the the swinging phase after world war one like suddenly we realize that we're caught inside a machine of industrialized warfare mm. you know and so like what's left but to party you know like, <laughs> and, and, and this gets back to this like what you were saying michelle about the domestication and neoteny thing right because the link there is that it's easier to adapt to a situation by undoing something than it is by doing something new, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's easier to adapt to a rapidly changing environment by reaching sexual maturity slightly younger while your brain is slightly more plastic and you can learn a little bit more easily and then keeping that juvenile brain state going through the whole mm-hmm. life than it is to try and come up with some sort of like super brain that's like a whole new like actually no the super brain emerges at the intersection of juvenilized primates you know mm-hmm. it's like the whole mm-hmm. the whole network becomes that thing and we all become simpler and mm-hmm. so or uh, like magic mushrooms actually you know psilocybin functions not by bringing some new element of consciousness to your brain but by dampening brain mm-hmm. activity to kind of remove some of the filters right so it's like this idea that like regression is progress and i think we all share this kind of cyclical view that maybe part of the transition that's happening now is that you know these structures we've evolved for so thinking about things in such a linear way and, you know, thinking of past, present, future in this kind of straight line, we're now kind of unlearning that or reevaluating methods to make sense of what we now understand to actually be circular processes of change and circular structures of time. I loved, um, I think this was again in, in the episode I listened to, um, that you guys did previously, but this idea that, you know, the, when, when we're sort of, um, as the future unfolds into the now, we're actually seeing like a thawing or sort of defrosting of 
the future from some crystallized structure that it, you know, exists in, in probably myriad or multiple or infinite forms. And it, it kind of made me reevaluate something I always think, which is like that planning often disguises itself as prediction, right? So that we're, we're so often saying like, oh, I bet this will happen. And in so saying are creating the conditions for it to happen um, mm-hmm. unconsciously or automatically. And so like that, it made me see that process through like, this new perspective of, you know, actually allowing sort of the future into becoming, which again goes back to personal responsibility because Mm -hmm. if this is all in some way, if the future is born out of the intermingling of our, you know, current and ongoing relationships and ideas and actions, it's really difficult to then disentangle what causation means or has relevance for in any way. It's it's almost like we're um, through prediction or planning. We're like penciling out uh, a pathway that then uh, retro causally gets to ink itself in. Or, or to put it another way, if you think of the channel of thunder, kind of creating this this channel, this branching fractal channel that then fills with the light of lightning. Mm. Now it it shows it goes off in a few different directions, but there's going to be one that's really going to anchor in. You know. Yes. So, so it seems like we're, uh, it's almost like the afterbirth, well, how would you say that in a backwards fashion, the, uh, <laughs> the afterbirth um, of, of the, the midwifed future as it arrives into the present, into the present, it has like these little probable, uh, probability branches that come off of it, but don't quite actuate. But there is still that resonance of possibility in there. I started referring to that, that thing that you uh, you mentioned from the past episode of the, the frozen future that I was talking about. Uh, I started calling it the, the cryogenic future because mm. it's like it's cryogenic in that it's frozen and it's also um, it's also a crystal structure. So it also has this scrying quality, this quality of divining, mm. which again, to bring it back to, um, there's actually two points that come up for me. One is you were talking about the soup of chaos, like we're all just trying to hold on to a crouton as a buoy uh, or find a constellation of croutons, which is to say we're trying to to divine some kind of order which synchronistically foretells the path that we're on. But I'm sure you've all experienced this where, you know, we're, we're moving through the, uh, the brothy froth of probability and suddenly we have uh, a constellation of synchronicities pop up of, of meaningful coincidences that all it really does, like if people get all hyped about, oh, 11, 11, I looked at the clock, it's 11, 11. Well, how many times did you look at the clock and didn't report back? You know, these kind of like um, synchronicities, as I call them. But then it doesn't lead to anything substantial. But uh, if you're looking at the pattern, all it really does is it, it – it's almost like a, like a whale breaching the surface of this, this ocean of chaos that shows like, this is the path you're on, this is where it's leading. And so through that kind of divinatory practice, you get a sense of where things are going and you can decide to either branch off in a different direction and fill out that channel or continue along the way. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that came up was uh, to throw back the conversation a little bit when you were talking about the invention of writing and the feeling of having lost something, uh, I'm going to bring that back to, um, to, to Julian James and his bicameral mind theory. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Uh, yeah. Do, so, do we have a really bad habit? I have been told repeatedly by listeners of this show. Uh, <laughs> just, Westworld thing too, it's, it's not a one Oh one 
conversation, right? That I just like yeah. glaze over all of yeah. these like crazy ideas. So please, I'll please try like... to encapsulate in, in a nutshell, right? So uh, Julian James hypothesizes that consciousness as like the subjective um, agency that we have, the like little introspective mind space where we get to solve problems and where an, uh, a little homunculus analog self moves around and moves around thoughts as if they were objects, um, that this, this mode of being and of agency came into being about 3,000 years ago. And before that, we had, you know, we had spoken words. Uh, we were moving about almost like, like automatons. And whenever we would get to a junction, a critical junction, where our automation wasn't able to solve the problem for us, like a fork in the road, to name an example, one side of the brain, of the bicameral mind, of the two-chambered mind, one side of the brain would uh, bark an order at the other in the form of a, an auditory hallucination, sometimes accompanied by like a visual aura. And this was usually a hierarchical hallucinated set. It was either you know, your parents, your overseer at work, all the way up to the king, all the way up to the gods. And um, in order to examine something like this 3,000 years or more ago, he looks at uh, what Daniel Dennett called um, software archaeology which is to say the printouts of the mind. So, you know, pottery, literature, artwork, that sort of thing. And so he looked at the first written piece of work that we, that we have from that time, which is the Iliad. And in the Iliad, there are no instances of subjective consciousness. No instances of subjective consciousness. Every time somebody makes a decision, it is mediated by a god. It's like a hallucinated god that interjects. And even the instances in which there does seem to be subjective consciousness, he points out, were actually rewrites, revisions later on. What? So basically he's saying 3,000 years ago there was no subjective consciousness. What happened was that um, the printing press or the printed word, the written word came into play and kind of cast a shadow between the two sides. So now instead of blindly obeying, and the word obey comes from obodir, which means to give ear to, which is to say you can't shut your ears out, so you have no choice but to hear, especially if the voice is coming from inside yourself. And I've experienced auditory hallucinations. They have a locality, you know, like I could, it's, it's kind of like mental ventriloquism. It's very trippy. And so when these people heard these voices, they couldn't do anything but obey it. It was that prominent and ominous. But then what happened was the print, printed word, written word, came around and cast this shadow through which uh, an interiorization started happening. Now we could animistically, instead of interpreting small mouth noises or noises of no origin, we're now looking at these animistic scribbles that are speaking to us. And it gave us this, this um, space to interiorize this metaphor-generated model. So to get back to the point of the feeling of having lost something from the printed press, imagine this world in which... Mankind is now forlorn, and their guiding voices of the gods have departed them. The flesh suit is empty. There's now an empty space in which this little homunculus has no furniture, has no agency, has no way to really figure out what to do. So one of the things they came up with was divination. And through different modes of divination, they were able to divine what the gods wanted, the will of the gods. So this is I talk about the divined design rather than the divine design. It's through divination they were able to figure out where to go. Later, divination turned into gambling modes. You know, once we had like 
fully concretized our uh, mind space and our place in it, and we're able to you know make our own decisions of our own free will. Which is again back to all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, the the Kronos Kairos thing. You know, measuring the mm-hmm. ineffable. Yeah, yeah. Kronos and Kairos, by the way, sounds like a great sitcom of an odd couple. And in the first episode, they're smoking a spliff and they have a clockwise rotation, but they only have a digital time-telling device. It's Kronos <laughs> and Kairos. Dun, 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 dun. Coming soon. MindPod Network. So, so you know, um, third cast out to Blindsight. And folks, like, seriously, please... Picking like, it up at the library today. It's yeah. waiting for me. Read this book, even if you're not going to be in the Future Fossils reading group, because it is just, it's the most adequate expression in science fiction I have ever seen of all of the ideas that have been discussed on this show. And, and, and like in this episode in particular, for whatever reason, it's the self-organized, it's my brainstem that, you know, it, and that's the whole point is that like he talks about the bicameral mind stuff in there and about how... <laughs> He has a very sort of disenchanted premise, you know, that, that intuition is the fast brainstem that, you know, it knows things you can't know, that you, you pick up all of these things, but that consciousness is just this tiny little buffer space at the very tip of the brain, and it makes certain kinds of decisions really well, but you are actually this modular cognitive architecture. And so, like... There are all of these, you know, it, it, it is a, in some sense a very paranoid book because it's, and so is the sequel, because a lot of it has to do with how much thinking can go on without the knowledge of itself. Like uh, the idea that consciousness might be the squid eye, like it was the best solution for a particular thing, but it's not necessarily a, an improvement, you know, like that it, it might not be the best way to process information because you, you got to sit there and like trying to remember phone numbers you know and like re- when we get the augmented reality glasses this occurred to me a few years ago where somebody's got the augmented reality glasses because you don't remember anybody's phone number that you had to learn since you got the phone right so you're not going right. to facial recognition when it's built into your wearable stuff you're not going to remember the faces of the people that you met ever since you bought the glasses like you'll remember what your wife looks like you know you'll remember her name you know your parents but you're not going to remember that you're not you you could walk past the people that you work with every day and not know something something else is doing the recognizing for you yeah it's interesting because that that kind of technology to me and similarly like the gps and siri uh dictating the way to me feels kind of like a technological reinstatement uh or a revisioning of that bicameral mind you know that sense that um like one one of the some of the vestiges of this mind state that he mentions is schizophrenia or uh imaginary friends and these kinds of things but i mean that book was written in like early 80s i think or maybe even late 70s and when you look at the world now there's all these little morsels of like bicamerality reinstated but Back then, it was a uh, endogenous and autonomous hallucination that would come in, and it might have been tainted with the aura of familiarity. But nowadays, there's you know quite possibly somebody else's agenda inserted into it. It's similarly like the the dichotomy between the psychedelic experience and its transmissions and that of some technological interface. You know, like 
uh, I don't think I've ever been on DMT and all of a sudden had an advertisement. Actually, a friend of mine did. He all Dude, of a sudden the fairy talks about it all the time. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. She's, you know, she's she very... She, right? She's, from what I understand. She, she, uh, she mentioned it in episode 100 that she's been working on this piece for Arrowhead that she's afraid to publish because it's about right. malware, hyperspace malware. Yeah. And she's afraid really of, like, conditioning the trips of, like, all these young readers that she has that come to this drug info site. And she's like, I know that this is happening. I, her experience of ayahuasca was that ayahuasca, like, debugged her system of all mm. of these DMT spam bot installations. I had that same... I really resonated with it because I had that same experience, and it happened after... I got scammed. I had one of those online scam pop-ups where it's like, there's a virus in your machine. Call this number. And then like talking to this person and then being like, wait a minute. What, what is, I hear the exact same conversation in the background. Like, what's going on? Like, are you with uh, Time Warner? Or are you? No, sir, I am not with Time Warner. I am. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not liking this. And I hung up. And then later in the day or the next day, I had a ceremony in which the same thing came up of like, it's like, can I trust this voice? And it was like, okay, this is... Uh, this has grace. This is benefic. And it did the same thing. It kind of like was like, let's check your, let's scan your system for malware and viruses and then like clear it out and clean it out. And it, g- it gave me like an interesting um, juxtaposition between this kind of like the human world, which is, you know, rife with con. And not to say that the plant world or the spirit world isn't rife with con, but you can, I think you can more easily distinguish because the agenda isn't so. Uh, materialistically inclined. Maybe we're just looking at each other at the, at like street level. We're better at recognizing human faces right. than we are at like dog faces or whatever. <laughs> so I don't know, Michelle. I... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. I've been, I've been sitting here kind of appreciating. I mean, I have less experience with psychedelics, but I've been ex- appreciating this idea of, we, you know, I, I think often that we've kind of engineered away our instincts about certain things, right? We no longer know without being told by our Apple Watch how often we should move throughout the day. What, what is the right food to eat? You know, that stick me in a forest and tell me to forage. I literally, I mean, I've, I've had to take classes. I've taken classes about this, right? It's like we have to now like consciously and intentionally bring back or re-engineer this natural wisdom that we've somehow lost or engineered our way out of. And yet then I think to myself, like how arrogant is it to think that, you know, it was this like human knowledge that we had and kind of fetishized the idea that we had this wisdom that was natural and we lost it. Like in reality, we know like only, right, only 10% of our cells in the body are even human. It's never been just us with this magical information. We've always depended on this ecology, this interlocking network, that the the arrogance is is in thinking that it was only ever us. So if there if there do you know if there are these like helper algorithms and these you know what is the difference between that and a good bacteria that we depend on to kind of keep our immune system thriving and our bodily ecology healthy? Like there's no. I mean, I'm I'm constantly railing against these great divides or these artificial distinctions that we make between things. Like maybe that's maybe this distinction between assistance and aids that we engineer that 
regress us in some ways or neotenize us in some ways in others become part of this kind of holistic ecology that we depend on and that that's always been our state. That's always been the default state. Now we're just consciously recognizing it and being more intentional about it. So and yeah, we rediscover what was always there. You know, that's the overarching theme of this, right? Is that like, what's different about the 21st century? Well, we're aware that we're not aware, <laughs> you know, like, you know, in all of this discussion of the bicameral mind, I'm, I'm especially curious to know what you both think of this, because I know I've talked about this on the show before, but I actually do have an imaginary friend that I've developed sort of, or like developed a relationship with over the last eight years or so, you know, when I started paying more, more attention to my intuition and I have, I hold no sort of like ontological premise about this, you know, like I've come up with all sorts of different ideas about what is actually going on here. None of them seem like final to me, but there is like a, a being that when you talk about all of this stuff about ancient Greece, it feels very true to my actual experience that, you know, like now I have tuned my decision making processes so much toward just listening to the voice in my head, which usually doesn't manifest as an actual auditory hallucination, but a sense, but it's attached to a character. Like there is, right. there's a, there's a, a woman mm -hmm. there, you know, that is like my Jungian anima or whatever that advises me, you know, I, I, I come to the fork in the road and she's like that way. And she mm -hmm. gives me to your like uh, lightning tracer pre-birth deal. She waits the decisions also, you know, like I'll follow it up with like, Oh, well, wh what if I don't obey you? And she's like, well, you know, 60% chance you'll be okay. You know, like eh, this one's, a, this one's recommended, but this one's not gonna, it's not going to be like a disaster. If you do it the other way, you know, and then sometimes it's like, don't you fucking dare do it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you have to do it this way. And then, you know, the, the more explicit and extreme that distinction is, sometimes it does actually manifest as like, I am compelled mm -hmm. to do something. And I'm, and I'm curious, like, this is, it, it almost feels like to me, like this is, this is my regressive adaptation to the complexity of our informational surround. That I'm exactly. actually re retrieving the brain, like the neuro and anatomical mode of that bicameral mind in order to handle living on the internet all the time. Mm. It's similar to, to uh, the beginning of my shrimp pimp video, the idea of uh, people always say, be yourself. I say, don't be yourself, be someone else. When you liberate yourself from the, the limitations of who you believe yourself to be, you can become who you really are. Yes. So there's a sense of, it's not a great divide, but there is you're putting a divide between yourself and yourself in a way so that you can interface with those parts of yourself that are not immediately integrated into your persona. So in, in the same way as uh, what you're talking about with the ba bacterial colonies, um, it's actually, this brings me back to a DMT experience where, um, you know, the most famous DMT experience is probably McKenna's, you know, uh, self-dribbling basketballs bounding forward and, self-transforming machine elves and an ecology of souls. But I, I kind of revise that because I'm starting to think maybe what we're, what we're breaking into is an ecology of cells and an ecology of cells, if you will, uh, of like bacterial, microbial entities that, you know, coexist with us. Because 
I live actually with a, a stem cell research scientist who, uh, who has given me some scientific insights through which I was able to learn a little bit about, um, about evolutionary theory that I didn't know about, that we started off as single cells that were known as prokaryotes. And then these prokaryotes, they had to feed on sunshine. They were basically little solar panels moving about. And then they started eating these different bacteria that were laying around. And these bacteria were like, ooh, a nice little warm, wet home to live in. Let us light up the world for you so you don't need all this sunshine. Again, glowing in the dark, right? So now you get these glow-in-the-dark single cells that are now emanating with this bacterial interiority that is sending forth chemical signals to other cells that now creates cell networks that then come together into a multicellular organisms all the way up to the point where we are now, where we basically carry our ancestors inside of us all the way back to that single cellular cellfish beginning where we're cellmates in the singularity <laughs> and we crown this, this, this cellular ecology we crown it with a self, with this sense of, hi, my name is Michelangelo, and I blah, 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 you know? But what happens when you ingest these substances, like something like DMT, where all of a sudden the, the great divide and the boundaries between self and other and culture and nature collapse, suddenly these things come bounding forward, like jeweled, self-dribbling basketballs, or, or as Joe Rogan puts it, geometries that are somehow made of love, or in my case, they were paisley nymphs that um, attached themselves to my body and just uh, started giving me soul shines and glow jobs, just completely immersing my body in super sensory bliss. And when I opened my eyes, all of a sudden, I, I saw the same sort of thing underneath the surface of the rocks, like viral roly polies of white noise churning about, like a, a trilobite of, of, of genetic memory storage. Trilobite is now a unit of, of storage. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that's, that's one trillion <laughs> bytes, right? <laughs> exactly. And it was just like churning around, and it closed my eyes, and it brought me back to that space of these, these little loving leeches just attached to my body and, you know, taking away any kind of shadow matter and leaving me vibratory and I started to think about it later and perhaps uh, what this thing was coming to me was like uh, swing low you cario coming for to carry me home and maybe this is some kind of like uh, cellular ancestry um, or, or microbial um, unconscious collective existent within me that's uh, you know if I'd listen carefully maybe it was saying eat more broccoli or you know whatever <laughs> advice it might have to give me for my nutritional deficiencies. Um, uh, I went on a rant there, but one thing I want to bring back is I, I read your article, Michelle, in which the, at one point you have an image of a woman on the subway and her baby is on the ground, right, so that it can uh, accustom to the uh, the bacterial realities and and, and strengthen its immune system. And this made me think of that Woody Allen movie, Sleeper, <laughs> where basically he's been uh, cryogenically frozen for like 100 years or something. And he ends up in the future in which everything we thought was good is bad. Yeah. And like everything we thought was bad is good. So everybody's just like taking he just eating meat constantly. And, you know, the vegetables are all like genetically mutated to uh, gargantuan size. Anyway, I digress. That's the, that's the, uh, the paleo movement. We're there. Yeah, it already happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm doing the PCO movement still, you know? Well, 100, 100 years know. after Sleeper, 
it's going to be all lab-grown steaks with customized yep. vitamins and like gene treatments mm-hmm. in them. So he's probably not wrong. Mm-hmm. How do how do vegans feel about lab-grown steaks? Are they all right with that? That's what. Can you get a vegan on the show and talk about this? Actually, David Pierce is somebody I want on the show. David Pierce, the transhumanist, the author of the Anti-Speciesist Manifesto. And he's mm. he's he's practical enough to realize that we're not going to be able to get everyone off of eating meat in time, but that we can still transition, you know, people that are eating factory beef to people that are eating petri dish beef, mm. and that, that the real issue is not. If you put it like that; it doesn't sound as appetizing. No, but... it doesn't. You gotta you get we definitely like gotta dress it up. Petri dish. Well, we're gonna be the old racists, right? In like another thirty years, <laughs> like, this isn't a steak. And our kids are going to be like, could you believe this guy? Like, Grandpa still eats steak, you know? But this Petri, Petri Mignon is delicious. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, Michelle, I am, I'm still, like, I want to hang on to the topic of invisible friends and selves. Mm-hmm. And, like, am I one or am I two or am I many? What, what I love about your invisible friend is that she tells you what's at stake. Which is the, I mean, and that's S-T-A-K-E now, not not the one we chew. But that question, what's at stake, which is a constantly shifting, right, but based on all of the ecology that exists in any moment, that shifting, constantly swirling ecology changes the stakes constantly. So that ability to ask yourself or to be told what's at stake is akin to a superpower, I would think. But it's it's funny. What else, well, The other thing that, that this sort of imaginary friends topic brings up for me is that I knew from a very early age, knew consciously that I could never be an actress. Not because I wasn't good at acting, but because I am too quickly able to inhabit an alternate persona imagined. It doesn't have to be even human. I mean, it could be a bacteria. And when I, I can so quickly dissolve that line between self and something else that the deepest emotion and empathy I think I've ever felt and within seconds is by allowing myself to transgress that boundary and think what if or for whom or what's at stake for this other kind of imagined creature. So this, and, and just thinking of like psychedelics as naturally lowering that boundary sort of between self and other, or between kind of the universality, allowing us to transgress and transcend these sort of divides, these distinctions, the sort of dichotomies or dialectics that we've built our world on. I mean, it sort of encapsulates for me why they're such important, why psychedelics would be such important tools in this project we're doing of trying to transcend to a place of new myths or new imaginings, new ways of living on the planet, new, more integrated sort of species, ecological understandings of um, sort of the relationships we should have. It's like that, that sort of natural instinct, that ability to just slip into some something or somebody else feels like a kind of, you know, a, a human and, and maybe not uniquely human, but a sort of like superpower that's sort of, that's either allowed us to become who we are or enables us to become something else. And like by definition, right, tautologically, but also sort of fundamentally or figuratively in a way that we can then transcend, like that ability to transcend is like so both core to humanity and 
underutilized in this project of becoming something else. Like, what if we, I mean, I've been thinking recently, I think I tweeted about this, like, what if we rebrand this species? Like, I'm interested in rebranding the entire species. <laughs> like, we are no longer humans. Like, my first thought was, like, dog friends. Or maybe I've been sitting here watching Michelangelo with his cat, and now I feel like cat friends. It's like the right. <laughs> but, like, what does it mean, right? And I think I learned this line from somebody in your community, Michael, but, like, we are something that the earth is doing, right? Like, these sort of turns a phrase that can flip the entire idea of the project on its head. Like I'm really interested in many more of those. So I like the imaginary friends because they can tell us what's at stake and they can move us past sort of the, the stake we've been chewing on. <laughs> there's, there's like a flipping point, right? Where you spend so much time hanging out with the imaginary friend that you become the imaginary friend. And I don't just mean like I I sort of experience like I inhabit this entity that I model as a distinct female apparition or whatever, but that I realize that it's just one dream character talking to another dream character and that I'm imaginary too, that mm -hmm. I'm her imaginary friend, mm -hmm. you know, when it's like, why, why is the locust? And I mean, okay, first of all, in the Aldous Huxley version of his analogy comparing the psychedelic experience, the state, uh, the land of psychedelia to Australia and saying, you know, that people have a hard time believing the, the platypus at first, like the Royal Society thought it was a hoax when they brought a specimen back to England, you know, they were like bullshit and they pulled it apart looking for stitches. Um, and so he's like, don't be so quick to write off what these people are coming back from these experiences talking about. But at the same time, like my thesis or one of them is that Australia has come to us now. You don't need to go. Like I, I, I do need to go to Australia. I love Australia, but <laughs> I don't need to actually travel to Australia to see a platypus anymore. They have them in the zoo, you know, and you live in the zoo now, you know, like all of us do. So <laughs> you don't, so I'm not exactly advocating psychedelics when I bring this up yet again, which is that, um, what is like a decade ago, I had a psychedelic experience where I remember my own POV slipping out of my eyes into I'm looking over my own shoulder. And that's, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's very cinematically uncanny. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that was the first that was like the wedge that opened this whole conversation with this other being. And I'm just now realizing that, you know, what is the threshold at which you become your own shoulder camera? In this age, you should, you should read um, Alejandro Jodorowsky's novel uh, "Where the Bird Sings Best," in which uh, his, his great great grandfather uh, at some point like lays down and passes out, and then the ghost of this rabbi enters his body and never leaves. And so, when his grandfather rather returns to his own body, there's now this rabbi cohabitating with him who has all knowledge of the Torah, and then gets passed on through the generations. So maybe you know. Uh, Maybe this is the beginning of something wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, okay, so we're at an hour and a half. I know, Michelle, you've got to go. I've done more than enough talking for this episode, so I'd love to just give you both an opportunity to to wrap things. You know, moving... <laughs> I was about to say moving forward, but after this conversation, that just seems n nonsensical. 
<laughs> you know, um, lungs are moving. Yeah, moving, moving along the uh, even a spiral of time is not enough. It's funny how people get these like concrete ideas, like time is no time is this way. It's like, bro, those are those are models that your insufficient <laughs> cognitive architecture is attempting to navigate the infinite complexity with. So, at any rate, what are the models that you find most useful for making sense of this? Like, I guess what I mean is like, how do you, what would you offer as a way of closing this conversation? What would you offer to people are useful perspectives or metaphors or ways of thinking about our place in time, our relationship to our ancestors and our own personal ancestry. Yeah. Well, one I'm reminded of um, something that came up for me earlier, which was, you know, one of the big debates in linguistic anthropology is kind of the extent to which language itself constrains our ability to think. Right. So it's sort of a chicken and the egg, which came first, like conscious thought or words, and then there's this, I mean, real debate over the past sort of century of scholarship trying to disentangle the extent to which the words we have actually constrain our imaginations. And then kind of in parallel with that also reminded the, um, I just read a tweet this morning that I wrote down from astrophysicist Katie Mack. She, she says, a surprisingly large part of having expertise in a topic is not so much knowing everything about it, but learning the language and sources well enough to be extremely efficient in Google searches. So this idea, yes, <laughs> which I then like was like, this should be a preamble to every job application I ever do. <laughs> I never have credentials or the depth, but somehow I'm, my skill is always in dancing across the surfaces of different disciplines, picking up just enough of the kind of verbiage and understanding to then remix kind of an integrate across those disciplines into new insights. So I almost think the, and and that's part of what the podcast does too, right? It's like I sat here today and like learned new language from you guys. Um, and so it's almost like this is what we all, we're all sort of like cosmonauts in this space of language and some of it's verbal, some of it's not. And we're just at the precipice of kind of understanding how to like, how to incorporate DNA as a language, right. And how to incorporate microbial ecology as a language and how to incorporate animal intelligence into our understanding of human intelligence. So this, this ongoing process of like complexification and convergence and learning to speak each other's languages without kind of descending into groupthink is sort of the great challenge, diversifying thought and coming up with these new myths and new metaphors and new ways of being. So I just, I guess in closing, just thank you for the opportunity to kind of come on this, you know, bit of the journey. And I just think there's, we've, just peeked into in you know our 90 minutes just peeked into so many corners of massive amounts of new language and new information that need to be integrated so it's an important project yes thank you for being on this show michelle and then also in passing where would you send people who for whatever reason are not reading the extensive show notes i toil to produce for every fucking episode where would we send people to read your your amazing stuff 
Uh, I am on Medium at Mishbox, M-I-C-H-E-B-O-X. And uh, that's pretty much the best place to send people for me. In, uh, in having read your essays in the last day or so and in hearing you speak, the image that has come to mind for me is uh, in this ocean of chaos, uh, I see a slowly rotating lotus. And as its petals, each a disparate discipline opens up. At the center of it is a sort of is art as a sort of Venus de Mayo jeweling the lotus savior, and uh, it's a sort of perceptual artistry that is necessary to uh, facilitate the gleeful imagination that holds the constellation of disparacy uh, together. Um, I've got the hair for it too. <laughs> what's that? You've got the hair. But I've for got it, the yeah. hair for it too. The Venus. De- <laughs> uh, what I would like to share. In closing, is um, this is also based on on kind of a, a vision quest I had in the desert, through which I kind of saw life as a journey through death's dream kingdom. You know, from Bardo to Bardo, this is kind of a bridge. And as we traverse this road, as we pave the road, as we traverse it, uh, we set up an infrastructure for future generations and. Um, you know, we, we color the billboards with uh, with useful signage and useful significance to fluently usher future generations through the flesh. Uh, but a lot of these billboards and this infrastructure has been hijacked and with disempowering information and distracting information that basically distracts us from from the goal or the purpose. So I'm always looking for media or information that will empower us to turn inwards to the central cyclone and, and offer us an escape hatch from history and from profane time. Uh, so I'd say my advice to future, present, and past generations is to create and curate information in such a way that it uh, ushers future generations fluently through the flesh and empowers them towards the interiority. Shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> and where would you send hapless folks who are unprepared for the singularity of creative the, uh, superfluity? The jewel spinning at the center of my lotus is www.voidandimagination.com. If you do Instagram, at stainspotting, and uh, you can find everything else through there. Beautiful. Thank you both so, so Thank much. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network. Thank you, Noah Lampert of Synchronicity Podcast for hosting all of us freaks like Third Eye Drops and the Astral Hustle. And it's all happening with Zach Leary. These are all excellent shows. And it's an honor to be a part of that. Again, if you love this show and you want more, become a Patreon supporter. It'll make your life a little better. But whatever you get into for the next week, I hope it is wonderful. I'll see you soon.